0: I need I need fury. Where am I needed? <laughs> Greetings, friends and fellow gamers, welcome to the brand new Not Enough Resources. We are coming at you with our first new episode with this brand new format. Um, if you listen to the PSA that we put out, we're doing a little more deep-divey stuff and a little less news, but we're still all about the games. My name is Ryan. I am your host. I am joined this week by two fabulous, fabulous people. First off, our illustrious co-host Dylan. Dylan, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing fantastic. You can find me at Scampy Twist on Twitter. Uh, I'm excited to, to be back in the booth, man.
0: Perfect, perfect. And we are joined by our very special guest, Stephanie Girk from Rogue's Portal. Stephanie, how are you doing this evening?
2: I'm doing great, thank you.
0: Perfect. Well, I am glad to hear it. So, part of our new format here at Not Enough Resources, some of the things that we are doing is we're doing more deep dives into topics that matter, um, overarching to gaming as a whole. And this week we're going to be discussing the benefits, drawbacks, and just the general overall conversation of digital games versus physical games. Um, This space has really exploded over the past 10, 15 years with the advent of things like Steam and free-to-play games and games that don't even have a physical presence in store, um, like Fortnite, which is one of the biggest games in the world. So to start off, I just want to kind of get your guys' history, your opinions, any hot takes you have before we start diving into the pros and cons. So why don't we start off with Stephanie? What do you prefer to make your purchases on, physical or digital?
2: Oh, absolutely. I've always been a physical gamer. Uh, I've always been on physical copies. Not to say that I don't own any digital, but whenever I buy a new video game, it's always physical.
0: Okay. And Dylan, what about you? I know you are a big PC gamer, so that might be different. What? Where do you land as far as you're walking to the counter virtual or otherwise how are you getting your games these days
1: i've been almost all digital for a very long time uh, other than buying some old xbox 360 games i can't remember the last physical copy of a game i bought uh oh i'm sorry i did buy breath of the wild uh in physical format but that's very rare that's like once in the last three or four years i think
0: Okay, okay, cool. So um, one thing that I think is really cool about digital games is it allows you to reach a larger audience as opposed to being uh, locked to like a physical storefront. Um, We've chatted on this podcast multiple times throughout the years we were covering news about GameStop and what that's going to look like in the future. Do you guys have any conclusions any long shot dreams of what the future of this industry is going to be
2: Uh, i'll i'll take this one really quick if you mind dylan absolutely i would i would love to see physical and digital work in tandem actually um have have the ability for people to be able to buy physical games if they don't quite have the resources to play digital because digital in itself like it's not just buying a game having it downloaded and that's it. Like they're so, it's so complex now with digital and gaming and streaming. Um, So I would just love, I would love the option for both, for them to continue to support physical games, but also have digital for those that it's just more convenient for.
1: I can definitely get on board with that. My biggest fear looking into the future, as far as digital games go is we've talked about in the past, like this big push towards uh, games as services. And there is room in the space, a la Spider-Man, a la God of War, um, for these large single-player games that are, like, kind of a single story. And I don't want to see, because there's a large cash grab from just these digital games and services, you're constantly paying for them. I I don't want to see that just become the norm, because I do think that that's, like, not correct. But I also hate seeing things like Nintendo... I mean, we constantly joke about how many times we've bought Super Mario Brothers and like, how do we, how do we stop that?
0: Yeah, I think there's definitely a a disparity, especially nowadays where like everything is getting remastered or rebooted or packaged together in a collection with like a couple extra missions, things like that. Um, Stephanie, I know you're a very big fan of the Assassin's Creed series. And this Mm -hmm. generation, they've been doing that a lot as far as, like, putting out collections of, you know, remasters, compilations. Like, there was the Assassin's Creed 3 remaster that just came out. How do you feel, like, games can thrive in that space as games age and get older?
2: Well, it's it's not just Assassin's Creed doing collections. Um, There are companies like Limited Run Games that actually make available uh indie games or, or older games they're actually able to revive some of these and bring them back into physical format because they're difficult to find or they were digital only for so long and maybe they're no longer on the digital market so they've actually found themselves like a very they found that market and they'll they're able to thrive in that market because they do limited runs they're like we're not expecting to make insane amount of sales mm-hmm. but so we we've brought it down to like a smaller level, but people are still interested in buying those games. So they sell out every single time
1: with the, the niche um, talking about like classic games and things like that. Yeah. I do think it's really important that we, we kind of cover also like, how do we preserve games? Because there are games that bubble up and reappear. Um, one of, one of the things that kind of popped up on Reddit this week, I think it's an older news story, though, was the short film that showed before Empire Strikes Back by the art director for the film. Yeah. Um, kind of appeared out of nowhere. But, like, that's a, a thing that was basically lost in the physical format. And we didn't, like, luckily we were able to retrieve it, whether it's good or not. But, like, as far as the history of video games go, it's important that we recognize like there's not only a market to like sell these things and for people to keep making money but also mm-hmm. who is keeping a master copy of all of these these games that may not have hit the same popularity level as as something like Super Mario Brothers to make sure that we don't lose that piece of history no, no matter how minute it is
2: yeah and and i have to agree with that because right and that's and that's where my concern with digital games actually come into because a lot of time if an indie game or a smaller game, like, you know, with any of the old N64 cartridges or or just any of, uh, like, even Atari games, you know, the only thing that exists from those games are physical copies. But a lot of indie games these days, um, or just, you know, not even indie games, like, look at Telltale Studios, they, a lot of their games were digital, then they went under, and then those games disappeared, and if, if it weren't for the physical copies... They they did end up getting saved in a way, but if it weren't for those physical copies, then people would have no way to play those games.
0: I think that's a very good. And point. it's like,
2: and and it was, and it was the only way we could preserve it. And a lot of people they find older copies of games, a physical copy, and that's how they preserve it because they're able to transfer it to digital. But we needed those physical copies in the first place, and video game publishers aren't always willing to let us have access to, like, the source code for digital games. Yeah, and, like... You know, like, if a company goes under and it was a digital game, then that's it. Like, it's gone forever. They're not... Pro- more than likely, they're not going to give those... Yeah. Give that game to anyone else.
0: Yeah, well, well not... as far as, like, preservation is concerned, one thing that I... Because I'm I'm a collectionist myself. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime I buy, like, a DVD or a Blu-ray... um I try and rip it so I have a copy yeah. of it, um, Yeah, which is, you know, the other way of this, you know, physical going to digital. One thing that makes games interesting, though, is especially modern games, is modern games are, like, patched all of the damn time. Like, very yeah. rarely do you get a game from GameStop, Walmart, Target, wherever and then come home and like instantly are able to play it. Like you either have to like do a base install or do a version update or something like that. And like, where, where is the line for preservation on that? Right? Like do you preserve 1.0 or do you do what Blizzard's doing now with like world of Warcraft classic where you just, you try and get it as close to 1.0 as you can.
2: Right.
1: Well, that's so wild to me. Uh, speaking of Wild WoW Classic, I had the conversation with a group of friends that I've played Wild WoW Classic with, and we've we've brought it up, it like, would you play a League of Legends Classic? Like, what patch is the patch that you play on? And does that patch even exist? And uh, specifically in, in the MOBA genre, I mean, whether you're talking about Dota 2, but there are patches in the past that people really enjoyed, maybe enjoyed even more than the current, like, retail patch. And there isn't, like, we had all of those private servers for World of Warcraft that got shut down slowly, but there isn't, nobody's really doing that. And also, like, the legality there is very, like, uh, gray-red zone for sure. And especially in, I, I don't know, it's, it's weird in, like, competitive scenes where, like, there are games where they, like, mess up and they keep messing up and the professionals may, may want to go back to a patch that they've played on before that was good. That was well-balanced and entertaining to watch.
0: Yeah. And like, that was a big problem with the Overwatch League uh, for the first half of season two is there was this patch that like the pros had like figured the meta out completely and you couldn't roll it back. Like once, once the cat was out of the bag, you couldn't, you know, put the cat back in. And then you had like this weird thing where live servers were on a different patch than the competitive servers. And like, What do you balance for? But, like, even throwing that out, like, going back to, like, the base of preservation, like, do you save? Like, is there, like, a 40 terabyte terabyte hard drive sitting in Microsoft headquarters that has, like, every version of Halo, like, ever?
2: Well, I think at that point we're looking at, is the game complete?
0: Well, and that <laughs> is the
2: game finished because it's like with with multiplayer games like uh, MMOs and all that stuff. A game is truly; those games are never truly complete because of that. Yeah. But if you look more at like a a single play, single player based game, those ones are also like equally getting patched as just as much with DLC and extras, and then eventually, in in my opinion, I would say that when they stop releasing patches to fix a game. And they stop updating it that's when the game is done that's the finished copy
0: yeah and so do you preserve those earlier copies or do you think preservation should just be like when it's done
2: i would say when it's done but also i think it's we have to remember that how it got there it's kind of like um how it's like the process of preserving how a game is made yeah because um, I went to in London recently, I went to an art exhibit, and um, it actually looked at the steps of game creation and how some creators um, had documented the entire series. and They actually had versions on the screens, not playable, unfortunately, but they had um, versions of the game. They, like here was actually like an earliest copy of the game, didn't get released, but here's what it looked like, just so you can kind of see the steps. Yeah. Um, So they didn't have everything, but they had glimpses into it. But at the end of the day, they're like, the game that we had made was the game that was finished at the end.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up um, because there have been some examples of games that, like, get content long after they're, quote, unquote, done. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, the big one was, uh, what was it? Like, Portal. Right before they announced Portal 2, Portal had been out for three years at that point, And right before they announced Portal 2, they put in, like, a little 40 megabyte patch to change the ending just a little bit. So it could be like, okay, now we're ready for the sequel. And, like... Right. I think, like, part of that is, like, what constitutes is complete, quote-unquote. You can't see the air quotes, but I promise you they're there. Yeah. <laughs> um... but like what constitutes as a complete experience a complete game and like what about like just patches that like fix bugs because i'm currently playing through um star wars jedi fallen order right now and it's really really good and really really great but like there's patches that are already planned because there are bugs like the single player experience Mm -hmm. because it's a single player game is locked and loaded But, like, there's bugs to, like, do things like increase or decrease load times or decrease the amount of unreal pop-in that you get when you go from area to area. And, like, I'm trying to figure out, like, where's that line of, like, okay, this is the version that came out the day it was released. And this is the version, you know, nine months when all of the bugs have been patched out and fixed as players have found those things. Because that's the thing is you could quality test a game until you're blue in the face, you're not going to get as much data as you get as soon as you release it to the public.
2: That's that's true. That is very true. But I also think it kind of speaks for how the game industry has changed over the past couple of years. Because before, when you released a game in earlier days, they didn't have the the ability to fix things. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the ability to patches. so they knew that their final product, what got released in physical form... That was it. Yeah. And it's been with this latest generation of consoles, because I'll say straight up that I'm actually, um, I'm a big console gamer. I don't PC game mm-hmm. that all that much for that reason, actually, because I don't enjoy the constant updates, the constant patches for games. I like to have a physical copy, put it in a console and, and play that and not have to worry about getting a million updates, the experience changing. Yeah. I, I want that finished piece of work.
1: Well, okay. and, and you talk about, like, setting the standard as gamers for a finished piece of work so you don't end up with stuff like when Battle Battle Star Wars Battlefront came out and it was in... Oh, two, that was a horrible launch. And it, was, it was a horrible launch. It was an incomplete game. And, like, it is better it's now. It's great now. It's a I'm good game now. There. It's great now. Yeah, um, but, like, the, the launch killed it. It killed a player base that probably would have been large. And, I mean, there's a whole other section of of stuff to unpack there as far as like unionization of workers and all that crap but um we're not crap i shouldn't say it's not crap it's important um yeah but the as far as like expecting a completed game on release i think gamers have have almost grown numb to that expectation anymore
0: yeah
2: yeah like when i buy a game now i don't I never buy a game at launch anymore. I've completely stopped that because I got so frustrated with having to wait for day one patches and so on and so forth. I generally wait at least a minimum of six months before I play a new game.
0: See, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think Jedi Fallen Order is the first game I've purchased on launch date since probably Smash Brothers. Mm-hmm. And it's just because like, I know if I buy a game on day one, I'm going to get burned. Like, I was super yeah. hype and super excited for Fallout 76. And, like, that game was at launch just kind of a piece of demo software. Like, it felt like, yeah. you know? And, like, now it's definitely getting better. I'll probably go back and revisit it once they patch in, like, the NPCs and actual quest lines and storylines and stuff like that. But, like,. Are we expected as as consumers, as gamers, to get bamboozled, like, right out the gate like that? Like, I don't think that's cool. I think it's a bad practice. But, you know, people sign up for it and people do it, you know?
2: And they, uh, yeah, and they just, we're becoming very passive and just taking it. Um, and because I'll say this right now, like, I'm massive, as you know, I'm a big Assassin's Creed fan. Yeah. I have, and I purchased the collection, like I pre-order it. I always get like the, the big special collector's editions because I'm a huge fan of the series and the world and I think they do an amazing job. That said, I have never once actually beaten the game upon release. Yeah, I will try it out and then very shortly I will end up rage quitting because I've hit so many glitches and so many walls that just ruined the experience for me. I remember playing one of the Assassin's Creed and... And I fell through the map like five times within a period of 10 minutes and had to like keep restarting the game every single time. Yeah. And at that point, like, like, it's, it's not fun. You're not, you're not enjoying it. The product isn't worth the money you paid for. And they're like, oh, we'll fix it in a later patch. But you're like, okay, so I bought a brand new game on this time. And you're just expecting to fix it later.
1: You you pre-ordered a (laughs) pre-order.
2: Yeah. You you might as well,
1: when I pre-ordered it, you should have just given me the game and then let me know when it's finished.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like I got the physical copy or digital copy even, and it's like I'm sitting here waiting to see, okay, maybe I'll let them do like three patches and then maybe I'll go jump back in and hopefully it's playable again.
0: Yeah, there's definitely been a couple games that I've been eyeing that like I'm waiting for like, I'm just going to wait for like a year to yeah. where they released, like, the complete edition with, like, all of the DLC on mm-hmm. it. I did that with both of the uh, Lord of the Rings games, Shadow of Mordor and Shadow of War. Yeah. And, like, I think, especially because you know that, like, these big, high-profile games are going to get those kind of releases. Like, why would yeah. I spend $60 when I could spend $40 a year later and get all of the DLC with it?
2: Right. And you'll actually have a complete finished game. Not to say anything, like that glitches are horrible. They're actually like a game like Skyrim is still like even years down the road is absolutely a glitch fest, but not in a way that breaks the game.
0: Oh, I need to send you some Skyrim speed runs. <laughs>
2: oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I,
1: yeah. But I would, I would argue that part of the, uh, I think a lot in a game like Skyrim, I think a lot of the bugs, they were like, Oh yeah, that's there. But it requires so much work to like get it to show. And it's kind of funny yeah. when you do, so let's not, like, we'll leave it. It's, it's like, there's no reason to take the missing no bug out of, well, bug uh, out of Pokemon Red and Blue. Because, like, it's mm-hmm. kind of part of the game to a certain yeah. extent.
2: Exactly. Because it's just, at some point, it just becomes too difficult to fix certain bugs. And as long as it's not breaking the game, then just go with it. So they're like, yeah, this ge- this bug is now a part of the finished copy and as a consumer, as a gamer, it's like, sure, we can live with that. But it's become to the point where we started accepting those bugs. And then they're just like, okay, we're going to do this now for every game upon release. Every game is going to come out full of bugs. And we're just going to roll with it.
0: Yeah. And, like, what's the upper limit to that? So, like, Dylan, um, you brought up an interesting point with missing no, um, an old, old Pokemon bug that was like a creature you could catch that was just corrupted data that allowed you to like duplicate items it was really really weird it was one of the biggest like glitches i've known to like make it to the schoolyard so to speak but like one thing that was interesting when they re-released those games on the 3ds e-shop as digital downloads they didn't remove that
1: which I think is, is it's important, but they did remove it in Fire Red and Leaf Green.
0: Yeah, so they, they removed it in the remasters, but they didn't remove it when they did like the actual like re release of the the software for the three DS eShop, and that's something Dylan touched on earlier is how many times are you gonna buy the same game over and over? And are companies just nickel and diming us? So I want to kind of like transition. I'll answer
1: that last question. Yes.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, of course they're nickel and in- diming us. But like, I think I've probably purchased Super Mario and A Link to the Past probably a dozen times.
2: Like in what formats? Yeah, in
0: in, in all of them. Um, oh, okay. Like, so I know like A Link to the Past got a re release on the Game Boy Advance. It got. A release on the 2DS. It got released on the 3DS on the eShop. It's a part of Nintendo Switch Online's um, Super Nintendo service that you can get right now. Like, how many times are we just gonna like pony up? Like, I, and I think for all of their greatness and all of their ideas, like Nintendo is definitely the worst uh, culprit of this. I think yeah. at one point, um, Super Mario Brothers, the original, not like Super Mario World or Super Mario Brothers 3, but the original, I actually have that game on e-cards. Do you guys remember the e-reader for the Game Boy Advance?
2: I do. Yeah, I do uh, yeah you
0: could get entire games like on the side of these playing cards and like, I bought it because I like Super Mario, but like, when is enough enough? When do I, as a consumer, have... I don't want to say, quote unquote, I don't want to say rights to that software, but like that's one thing I really love about PC gaming is if I really, really wanted to, I could boot up like the original StarCraft on my machine right now. And that's a, you know, 30 year old game almost, or 20 year old game, excuse me. That's a 20 year old game at this point.
1: Well, and the the original disc still reads.
0: Yeah. And I think, but that's like a physical. Game, but, like, I'm not hardware-restricted, because a lot of these games that get re-released are hardware-restricted, right?
1: Yeah. Well, and you also, like, it just takes a CD crack to... Uh, I mean, that, that was a really popular thing when I was in high school to play War, uh, Warcraft 3, Warcraft 2, and StarCraft, because they, were like, they hadn't come out with a Warcraft 3 battle chest. It had been basically gone for a long time, and so you would just have somebody still had the cd and you would download a cd crack that made your machine think the cd was in it install the game and like the game would just check to see if the cd was in it and then you could play it
2: yeah and, it- and then and then we're going diving into legality issues of of game preservation or playing physical games or, or digital mm-hmm. games it's like the way we're preserving them now because they they haven't an- Well, the companies, the publishers themselves haven't done it. We've been doing it through illegal means. Well,
1: and let me follow up with that. So like illegal means, like you said, if I, if, if me and my three friends all bought the game on release, one of us has Mm -hmm. the CD, we use it to install the game on four computers and we use a CD crack on three of them. Have we broken the law?
0: I don't think so.
2: I don't think so, but I'm I'm sure a publisher would argue that.
0: <laughs> well, and yeah. The question is, would a publisher argue that, or would the publisher's lawyer argue that? Because the lawyer, yeah, yeah, more than likely. I mean, there, there are a lot of game developers out there that are like, I just want as many people to play this game as possible. Yeah. So that's like another side of that, and I think it's just really interesting from a preservation standpoint that like on the whole companies have failed at that right yeah whereas if you look at another analog another medium something like hollywood hollywood has a pretty good record of preservation like it's not perfect by any means um there's definitely holes and pockets here and there but you know once vhs came out once dvd came out like Preservation was the name of the game and you know a lot of studios still have like their old reels and stuff like that but like I am not sure if you could go to Nintendo and their headquarters and dig through all of their computers in their basement and find source code for some of these things.
2: Um, uh, but that's the thing, the film industry had to go through a learning phase to get there. They had to lose a lot of classics, a lot of films before they realized that preservation was super important. And the game industry in itself is is still very young and we haven't quite realized how how valuable what we have that we live in a world in a time where we can actually preserve everything that we create in this industry except no one's taken the leap to do so or they're trying to but we're getting so much pushback from places like nintendo who would just rather hoard it their own way rather than try to share it with people
0: well and i think part of that comes down to like ip law and like the mickey mouse of it all um Mm -hmm. because at what point like you know we used to have at least here in the u.s really good laws as far as um, Dylan, help me out here. I want to say statute limitations, but I know that's wrong.
1: I, that might not be wrong. I'm, I'm blanking on it too, <laughs> but it's basically just like the terms of control on media would, yeah. would be like the, is the, that's the definition of the thing that we can't remember.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, at, oh, uh, at what point does a property or an IP enter, I want to say free market. I know that's wrong too.
1: Um, at, at what point does it enter? The public domain. Mo- public, the the public domain. Commons. Oh yeah, that too. Yeah. More so that.
0: Yeah, sorry. My brain has just been like really, really borked, um, all day. But, um, one thing though is with this as far as like emulation and ROMs and preservation and things like that. Um There are some, some like data miners have done some digging on some like major re-releases and have found like some of the things that Nintendo is selling back to you might be ROMs. So like oh. one, one thing that was like really interesting was, um when it was super mario brothers on the original wii for the virtual console um it might be a rom like nintendo might have gone to a website that they have since struck down taken down for copyright infringement and downloaded a rom and then turned around and sold it back to people and i don't know like i mean legally it's their ip they can do that but like that's not cool, man.
1: Yeah. Well, and again, I think that (laughs) if, if super Mario brothers came out in 1907, then it would be in the public domain. And, but because, because gaming was developed and adapted for the global markets after the Mickey mouse clause, then it's owned forever basically. And, and Uh, I mean, Congress is, is continuing that here in the U S anyway. And it, and so it's, it's really sad to see, like, that's what empowers stuff like that. It's, it's also in gaming more so than, so in film, like if you are a film student and you go to school, you have access to all of these films that are in the public domain that you can watch and study and learn about the history of film. If you go to gaming school you can't look at any of any of the early stuff, any of the really important details that might help you become a better game developer because they're owned and locked down.
0: Yeah. That's rough. That's really rough. <laughs> Um. So it, and that's it,
2: huge for the development of the gaming industry like you said you go to gaming school to learn how to make video games you should be able to look back at those snapshots
1: and, yeah. I mean imagine if a musician was not allowed to study Bach and Mozart regardless of what genre of music they play they weren't allowed to study like mm-hmm. the classic composers the masters of time imagine if an art student couldn't use da Vinci's work Uh, or or Michelangelo's work to, like, develop their own skill because they weren't allowed to because the IP was under control.
0: Yeah, and that's ultimately, I think, what it comes down to with ROMs and things like that is, yeah, it's kind of cool that with an Android phone I can just download an emulator and play whatever I want if I can find the file on the internet. But, like, that's... That's different than preservation, I think. Like, for preservation's sake, I think it's it, it's really important. And, I mean, the other thing is, like, it's very important to understand the history of gaming. To understand where gaming's going. Um, you can mm-hmm. fit the entire regular Nintendo catalog on a one gigabyte jump drive. Like, every single game ever released for that system. And nowadays, you're getting games that are 100 gigs each. And it's just, it's wild to see where we have gone, where we have come from based on where we started with all of that, right? So I want to dive into another, um, aspect of preservation that I find really, really cool at least is, um, arcade preservation and what that looks like. Uh, Dylan, I believe you are familiar with this. Are you aware of one Billy Mitchell Uh, yes.
1: The super super villain of our generation.
0: (laughs) Yes. um,
2: I, for one, am not, so would love to hear about it.
0: Oh, man, this is a great story. So there's this documentary you should watch. It's called uh, The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. And uh, what it is, is it's a documentary about two guys chasing the high score on Donkey Kong. Uh, One of them named Steve Weeby is just like a teacher in Seattle. And the other one is this like hot sauce mogul who looks like he is a straight up like 1980s, like diehard supervillain. Right. He's got like the mullet. He's got like an annoying tie. He's got like the really big mustache. His name is Billy Mitchell. Um, And this documentary follows them, you know, going back and forth. Is this score legit? Is this score not? And a lot of it came down to, you know, one thing that's very important in chasing these high scores is you have to make sure that you're running on like a legit quote unquote cabinet that like meets certain specifications as far as like what version the game is running, um, the hardware that's in it, things like that. Because my midlife crisis, I don't know about you guys, but uh, my midlife crisis is I'm going to build an arcade cabinet and put it in my basement. Um, so I've actually looked into things like this before. And the thing with that is you have to make sure that you're running the right version. You have to make sure that there's not like turbos installed. You have to make sure that the TV is the same model as the original, um, for like things like refresh rate and things like that in order to chase a high score. What Billy Mitchell did is he cheated a bunch and he was doctoring videos through editing, But at some point, like, he was going in and modifying motherboards in order to get a better score. Um, All while
1: being defended by the governing body of arcade high scores. Like, he was their poster child, Twin Galaxies. and
2: So he did this to public arcades, like arcades that were just kind of sitting in there? Or did he have, like, arcade at home that he was doing this to?
1: He uh, held the both. record on a machine at Twin Galaxies
0: at one point.
1: I don't know if he altered that one. I don't know if he started altering machines just to beat uh, the the teacher or not.
0: Yeah, he did. Um, that came out a couple years ago. <clears throat> that he was modifying machines in play and like in order to like ensure legitimacy, a lot of these tournaments are done. You have to do them in a public setting. Um, video recordings are accepted um but like very very rarely i mean nowadays with like twitch and things like that like you could just live stream it it's fine but uh this documentary took place in like 2002 2003 so it was before twitch had really was even a thing um so like you know you couldn't live stream attempts at world record runs and things like that so with arcade preservation one thing that comes in to play and and into factor is the age of the hardware and you know where do you get parts because a lot of these old school arcade machines use like old crt heavy heavy monitors and like those don't exist anymore so like do you guys have any thoughts as far as like switching out the hardware on stuff like that like how what's your like authentic experience on that You know, do you switch out for a nicer TV? Do you keep the old one? Do you switch your buttons every 10 years so they don't get sticky? Like, does that affect the preservation of that?
2: I think it's a matter of whether or not what you're switching out for, does it impact it? So if like, if you're switching out some of the controls, it's like, are they better controls or will they be on the same level as the new, as the old ones, just in like better condition?
1: Yeah, yeah I, I think that... You
2: see what I mean? Like, will it affect the gameplay in a way that, that impacts um, the game itself?
1: Yeah. I, I think you ask a, a savvy uh, Hollywood art director who does <laughs> films set in different eras, and they'll tell you that they find a way. They, they find a way to, to get as close as possible, to get that authentic, real feel. And I think that's that's what you have to do. Obviously, like the code has to stay the same, but the hardware itself, it has to evolve. That's the state of technology. Those things weren't built to last forever.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just try to get as close as possible, but also you have to acknowledge if there are changes. So if you're trying to preserve uh, a certain arcade, you're bringing it into a museum maybe, you have to be like, hey here are the parts that we've had to swap out for newer ones, yeah. and so on. You, you have to acknowledge it. You can't pretend that you're preserving something in a way um, that's not entirely accurate.
0: Yeah, well, and with stuff like that, you know, you mentioned a museum setting. Um, one of my, actually, not one of, it is my absolute favorite place in the entire planet, um, the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. They have the yep. original um, Enterprise from Star Trek in the lobby, yep. and it's awesome and it's cool. But like the last time I went there, they had taken it out um, because they're they were doing like it's in
2: storage right now, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah. They they took it out. Yeah. They're putting it in storage. They're doing some restoration work on it. And like, at what point do you like like I guess like the the term would be like nostalgia goggles for something like that, Mm -hmm. and, like, how does that apply to, like, gaming, because, like, one of my uncles has, like, this really cool pinball machine called Pinbot, and, like, really, really awesome, really cool, but, like, he has refused to take it in to, like, a maintenance or a service place to, like, replace the rubber bands on the bumpers, so, like, it doesn't bump as much as it used to, you know, and, like, Mm -hmm. that's his choice, but, like, I don't know man like preservation on like a physical hardware level is so much different I think than when we talk about preservation of um you know like games and physical cartridges and things like that I mean you know the the original Nintendo 64 didn't have the expansion pack in it and then you had to buy like the five megabyte expansion pack to play like Donkey Kong and Perfect Dark and things like that and like those are like hardware upgrades That are now obsolete you know like one way to fix a ps3 these days that doesn't run as well or an xbox 360 that doesn't run as well is to switch out the hard drive for a solid state drive
1: i I also Mm want to say uh speaking of of games donkey kong 64 hasn't been because like rare's gone right
0: rare's a part of microsoft now
1: okay all right so do you but do you think is donkey kong 64 like safe
0: i think that's a very good question because like donkey kong 64 is like one of those rare ha ha ha, joke um (laughs) it's one of those rare cases where a company like nintendo loaned their ip to somebody else to make a game you know and like i know like the answer is nintendo probably owns the code but like those coders and developers and artists and things like that, that worked on that game, like,
1: yeah, well, and I don't don't,
0: do their dues as well. Right.
1: Yeah. And I don't want to go too far down the the Donkey Kong 64 rabbit hole. It's just a great game, but also like it didn't come out on the N64 Wii stuff. Right.
0: Uh, I think the, yeah, it did come out on Wii. I don't think it came out on Wii U yet.
1: Okay. Or so, like, will come uh,
0: out on the Wii U because the Wii U's dead. Yeah. Yeah, it's
2: not coming out there
0: anymore. <laughs> no, no, not even a little bit.
1: But but also, I mean, you, you talked about the Smithsonian, which is like a governing body of people that decide what's important historically in the United States to save and keep track of, basically. Yeah. Uh, they they curate important stuff like the original Star Trek Enterprise. Uh where does the responsibility fall for these games?
0: I think in the next few years, you'll definitely see that responsibility start to pop up. Um, Stephanie, you mentioned They're actually, you were in London I'm, and you saw like an exhibit. Was that like a traveling exhibit or?
2: Um, there is, oh, I can't for the life of me remember the name of this museum, um, but it's like a big art museum and they do not traveling exhibits, they curate them themselves. Uh-huh. Uh, some of the exhibits do travel, but this one never will. Um, yeah. But I, I just really wanted to touch back on the on the previous topic. Yeah, go ahead. Um, you know what? I actually just entirely forgot what I was going to say, so never mind. <laughs> that's, back to the museum. That's <laughs> totally fine. Oh, oh, now I remember. Sorry. Go. PAX. I was at PAX this year, actually, and I went to a panel on game preservation, uh-huh. and there actually have been groups of people... Um, that have started to come together to work on preserving games as much as possible, and and facilitating these conversations with publishers, or or smaller companies that have that are still have um, access to their IP. So and they're trying to work towards um, preserving games, but there is a lot of pushback, what, unfortunately. What kind of pushback? So the conversation from like IP holders or. From IP holders. Okay. Independent, independent publishers, you know, they are, you know, the smaller companies, the ones who put their blood, sweat, and tears themselves, and it's like a studio of five people. Yeah. Um, they're more than happy to preserve a product because maybe they released it on a, on a console or a system that just no longer exists anymore. So they're jumping at the chance to preserve their creation. But... It's pretty much non-existent for older titles. Yeah.
0: Well and like because a lot of those like just got lost in the IP shuffle. Like Midway doesn't exist yeah. anymore. They made some of the best yeah. like Super Nintendo and arcade games ever, right? Yeah. So what about you know we're talking about a lot of like physical preservation and preservationists. What about preserving digital only games? Um, there's a couple just like right off the top of my head um like scott pilgrim versus the world when that movie came out there was this really cool like beat up companion game to it that like played like old school like ninja turtle arcade games and stuff like that and then like three years after the game came out it got delisted from the xbox 360 store and the playstation 3 store and you can't you can't download it you can download it if you had purchased it before it got delisted But you can't,
2: like, go find it and download it anymore. No, it's gone unless you had previously bought it. It's completely gone.
0: Yeah, and even then, like, it's still hardware restricted. Like, I have an Xbox One, which has a great library of backwards compatibility um, that I absolutely love. But Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is never coming to that.
2: Yeah, so the only way you'll ever be able to play that game... Is, is if you have 360. Yeah,
0: is to hook up my Xbox 360, hook it up to the internet, verify the purchase, re-download it again. Yeah, And that's just, that's a lot
2: <laughs> to play this game. And and even just like that in itself is a big, big red flag digital-wise. Because one of the points I had wanted to really bring up with is how long do you think Microsoft will let you have access to be able to download that game? You know, before they cut off any any server connection for the 360. Yeah. And that's... It, like, if you don't have it physically downloaded now, let's say in five years, they might be like, okay, we're cutting off all support. So even though you had bought it, if you didn't physically download it,
0: yeah, or even then,
2: they might be like, you can't have it anymore.
0: Yeah, it's, it's not on your hard drive anymore. Well, and another one um, that I remembered was uh, the Tony Hawk games. Mm-hmm. They got a digital remaster for HD that came out on the 360 and PlayStation 3, but they were only listed for like two years because music rights. Because yeah, artists... that's so
1: much of those games.
0: Yeah, I know, right? Like, that's, that's the entire flavor of those games, right?
1: Yeah, we have a friend... Like, because that's... A lot of that is my kind of music, and... Uh, we have a friend who like makes fun of me and my other friend that also listens to punk and skater punk and some of that stuff. And, and he's like, you guys in your Tony Hawk music, like it's iconic.
0: Yeah. Like it's a call out. Right. But like with that, I mean, I can still download it cause I purchased it on steam, right? Steam's not shutting off that server. I'm looking at the page right now. I just have to hit the download button, but like you couldn't go buy it. And, I mean, Tony Hawk is probably fine financially. He probably doesn't have to worry about stuff like that.
1: He does have to be worried about being recognized in public, though.
0: Yeah, that's the only thing. I mean, follow Tony Hawk on Twitter if you don't. It's hilarious. Um, He always gets stopped. Are you Tony Hawk? Yeah, I look exactly like him. Of course I'm Tony Hawk. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, like... Having these games just like pop up for like two years at a time, three years at a time, and then completely disappear worries me from you know, a collectionist from a preservationist point of view, and it circles right back around to the only way to get these things now is through illegal means. And that's not cool either. <laughs>
2: like But if you had gotten a physical copy, you could stack. Technically, you you'd still be able to play it. You wouldn't have to worry about it. Like you may not be able to access multiplayer. Yeah. Um, but you would still, with a physical copy, you don't have to worry about it disappearing from the servers or disappearing online because you have that physical form.
0: Yeah. Well, and then the other flip side of that, though, is what about these games? You know, you, you talked about limited-run games. Great company. Mm-hmm. Um, does a lot of cool stuff to get indies out in a physical space. But, you know, they, they weren't around, you know, 10 years ago. And on top of that, not only were they not around 10 years ago, but there are some games that don't even have, like, a physical version of them. Um, like, the biggest... Example I can think of would probably be Fortnite. Like, Fortnite had that physical version that came out, but that was before it was, like, the Battle Royale, and they patched in the additional mode. And, like, I don't know. I just imagine GameStop executives crying themselves to sleep every time I see Fortnite pop up in the news. Because yeah. there's not a physical copy of it, you know?
2: Yeah, and and that's, that's where I am kind of unsure about in, in the physical versus digital world, because... Can you preserve MMOs? Because they don't—they don't have a set experience. The experience is the player's experience. Is the ever-changing world. So can can you preserve them?
0: Dylan, do you want to speak to this? Because you've been playing a lot of World of Warcraft Classic. Mm-hmm.
1: I have, I have, and and like, it's... do
0: you get like those nostalgia goggles of like, oh, I remember it being this way, but like it's actually this way. Like, how did that play into that experience?
1: Other than, and don't get me wrong. Like I was pro layering, um, but they got rid of layering. And if you guys are unaware, so they, they basically um, in order to, they like had like shared server spaces um, across the different servers. And if you invited people, you would like jump, you'd basically teleport into like the other server. Um, So you'd have somebody next to you and then they would disappear. Um, and so, like, that was the only thing where it was, like, made it not feel, like, classic, but also, or not feel, like, um, vanilla, uh, but in vanilla, also, like, if you tried to play with the player base on the first day, it was miserable trying to find anything, um, because there was just too many players, like, trying to kill the same thing, so it, it captures the essence of the game, I still feel like I'm, I'm enjoying the same game, and, and it Fixes a lot of the, but but also it feels like it just fixes a lot of the quirks of like the post Wrath of the Lich King retail games, um, yeah. that mo- a lot of people don't enjoy. They're not fans of, um, but I, I mean it feels like the same game. Like, I, I never have. I haven't had the nostalgia like be broken for me. I guess.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, and I think. And I guess with MMOs too, like the whole point of MMOs is that it's an ever evolving experience.
1: Well, and I, I think you also like you said like you can't really preserve it because part of that experience is the social. And yeah. and and that the massively multiplayer part is that like you're never going to recreate Leroy Jenkins, like it's no. It's not going to happen again. Um and it, and it's because like it's it's people. Um and I think that's important to like like you said, like you can't you can preserve the code and you can still access, but if you try to if you put in an empty server, that game is ruined instantly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the other one I wanna talk about that I think is really interesting, especially today in today's day and age, is um, not this game specifically, but just in general, with the Switch, a lot of games that come out don't actually exist. So like if you go to Walmart, GameStop, Target, Best Buy, whatever, right? And you purchase Overwatch, you just open the case and a little code falls out and you just oh. type in the code. So like that physical version doesn't exist.
2: And then No, and that is a huge pet peeve for me. It it makes me so angry to hear that. Well, and then that plastic case ends up that? in the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I was personally burned by that, and I was furious because I was like, "I'm not buying it for this hollow case. I am buying it for the disc. I am buying it for the ability to, if I'm not connected to internet, like with Overwatch, that's a, that's a always online type game, so not necessarily. But like that I one, think, Witcher, for example, but Witcher was if I other- buy a physical copy of a game, I would like to be able to put it in my Switch, and play it.
0: Yeah.
1: I know and not
2: have to worry about being connected to the internet to start playing
1: yeah well in the internet like making some games unplayable even though they're single player is probably the most obnoxious thing you can run into as like as a pc gamer and, and like it's happened to me on multiple mm-hmm. occasions it's infuriating I've gotten on a plane with some steam games in- installed that I wanted to play and i couldn't play them in offline mode
0: yeah, like you're on your laptop, and your laptop is just like there's no internet connection. We can't verify that you've actually purchased this game.
2: Oh yeah, and that's that's part of the whole DRM thing, and and Steam is notorious for that because they're like, oh, we can't pr- we can't confirm that you are who you say you are. So there you go, you just got cut off access to your entire library. Doesn't matter how much money you've given them you you can't access it
0: yeah and well and i think drm is like a very important point to bring up in this whole physical versus digital thing because you know for all of its faults and everything we've said about it thus far you can't pirate overwatch you can't pirate starcraft 2 you mm-hmm. you just you can't there's no way to do it
1: yeah and well and i was just about to talk about the fact that uh, uh pc bongs pc rooms you can't... Most of the games that people play in PC rooms anymore, you have to own it. Like, before... like when, and If you wanted to go and play StarCraft, you didn't have to buy StarCraft to play it if you lived in a place that had a PC room. Um,
2: oh, I loved those places. Which is
1: great, because, like, there were, and there are lots... Of, like, you could play Halo. You could play Halo 2. You could play lots and lots of games with people in the room without owning the game. And now, if you go to a PC room and you want to play Overwatch... You have but to log you, into your own account. You have to log into your own account and play it. Which, yeah, again, like, it does protect it. Um, but it also... Uh,
2: but at the same time, the the appeal of those type of places were that you could go and you could play these games, but you would be paying to, like, rent them for a period of time. But you could kind of play whatever, and you could also play with friends in a social setting.
1: Yeah. I also think, in the United States, anyway, a couple of them popped up in Denver... Uh, one was at the Westminster Promenade, but it was so expensive per hour. It was crazy expensive per hour. And then, I mean, this is years later, but I, and it may have been like that in South Korea, but when I went to visit South Korea, it was so cheap. It was like $2 an hour, uh, which is super worth it. I mean, you want to spend 10 bucks? <laughs> and get yeah, five, five hours, hours of gaming, and... so that's plenty. Yeah. Um, it's way cheaper than a movie, but... But you also like had to own Overwatch or or whatever the games were and I wonder if if that sort of place can reduce their prices because they don't have to Yeah,
0: because you don't have to buy 80 copies of Overwatch to sit on every PC just sitting Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I grew up um, the PC bang uh, I grew up with uh, was called Surf and Play and That opened my eyes to, like, a whole side of gaming that, like, I didn't even know existed before then. So, like, I think there's also, like, that discovery element. And I think, like, honestly, the biggest draw for me, at least, for those kind of places were, was the social aspect of it. Yeah. Was going to a place, seeing other players, instead of just, like, oh, I'm, you know, I play video games and, you know, I'm kind of ostracized for it and I'm kind of a nerd And then to see other people there enjoying your hobby, I don't know, like, when I was growing up, that was very life-affirming. I mean, I'm sure it's different now with kids, since everything is so connected. But, like, you know, in 2001-2002, I think that was, like, very integral to my development as a player, as a gamer, and as a person. So, sorry, I'm waxing philosophical about my youth. (laughs)
2: <laughs> uh, no, it's okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm constantly finding myself being like, oh, I wish, you know, I wish it were like the good old days of video gaming, where I could just pop in a cartridge and start playing the game right away, and not have to worry about updates or making sure my internet's working well, or, or having to set up a game four hours beforehand so it can d- download the base game.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the thing is like now. You get things like Microsoft or Steam or Sony putting out like tweets and things like that. That's like, if you buy the game, like you can start preloading now. And it's like, have we really come to that? Like, people are excited mm-hmm. for like preloading software they can't play yet? Like, what is going on?
2: And it's like, okay, so, but if you, if I go out there and I buy a game digitally right now, it's like, I'm going to sit here for however long it takes to download. Whereas before, I could just be like, put in my physical copy and away I go.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
2: So one concern
0: that I also have with um, the move to digital and things like that has to do with hardware and things disappearing. Um, One thing that happened in another digital realm was uh, when Barnes & Noble canceled the Nook they wiped out everybody's purchases that something like that hasn't happened on a wide scale for gaming quite yet but that's definitely a concern i have like going forward you know um stephanie you had mentioned earlier like when is microsoft going to flip the switch on the 360 servers to be gone forever so like one thing i wanted to pose to you guys is is that something you worry about that like one day you're going to wake up and your games are just gonna be gone
1: i mean i'm absolutely terrified about that i itunes has dropped like films off of their store before and those are two or three gigs and so if steam has a game that is taking up a few hundred gigs not a few but like even 50 gigs on their server that's like that's that costs them money and if nobody's downloading it uh, if they average, like, a download per year, then why leave it up to source when that costs money for that server space? So th- it's pretty terrifying to think that something that you feel like you've bought, you might lose access to it all of a sudden.
0: Do you think when you make yeah. a digital purchase that it's yours?
1: Well, and that's that's what's scary, and and I know we just mentioned iTunes and Apple, but, like, Uh, Recently, there's been a thing where I think a a guy in Sweden is being sued who owns a small iPhone repair store, and Apple is suing him. Now, it is a little bit dodgy about how you get parts in order to repair iPhones, but uh, one of the hardware issues, like we talked about Xbox turning off their servers, but also if your Xbox breaks and you take it to get repaired by somebody... Like we're looking at companies trying to come up with ways to stop that and like losing the right to repair. And when you talk about hardware and being able to like the only way to play that Scott Pilgrim game. Well, if your hardware breaks and and they still have the servers up, which, again, that's probably going to be the first thing to fail. But if the hardware breaks and you're not allowed to repair it legally, again, you're going to see people turning to illegal options, which ultimately like loses people money and or gets people in trouble. It's just not a, a system that works efficiently.
2: And there have been cases, like you said, uh, where Apple has lost the, the IP rights to some film and they've gone in and they just, it's not that they've just been like, okay, like people can't buy this anymore. They've actually physically gone in and removed them from people's libraries. And it's not just actually with iTunes. Um, Amazon actually did this with eBooks. Yes. People that had rightfully purchased eBooks, they're, now they're completely gone. They got pulled from the library and often without refunds. Yeah.
0: So and like and their argument cash. is
2: like, you don't own it. We're just giving you the right to access it. You paid for the right to access this content. So when you buy things digitally, you're not buying it. It's not actually physically yours. So even though, and I think the conversation, it hasn't happened yet with video games, but it will. Because no one's made any sort of... Um, well, I, I actually... No one's no one's chased those legal issues, yeah. I... But how long before... You know, they start pulling games from our digital libraries because they've lost the right to it.
1: I have an example of, of where I've actually lost digital content that I felt like I owned that I bought from Riot Games in the League of Legends client. Uh, there was a changeover, I think, three seasons ago where they got rid of runes, uh, which were part of the, like, pre-choices. Uh, it's basically, like, specking in all the Warcrafts um, yeah. for certain champions and they, they decided that that was too limiting for new players, and they were finding, like, the you wanted a learning curve where people could pick up the game and, and still enjoy the game, and they were finding that, like, the game was too hard to get into because of how much stuff you had to, like, buy. And so they got rid of rune pages um, and just switched to just masteries because they used to have masteries and runes. Well, I had bought extra rune pages with money because they were locked in for a long time. You couldn't edit them. Um, So I bought rune pages with money and my refund was not equitable at all. I even sent them an email. Lots of people did. And they just replied with like, sorry, no, that's just how we're doing it. We think it's fair. But it really was not fair because I was getting I was getting content that I could buy with the free currency that they give you when I had bought the content that they were taking away from me with real like real life money um and so like you do see it in the gaming industry and they also just kind of give you the middle finger and move on and even though this is like a small kind of piece of a game it's not like a game in its entirety i think it is an example of where like that game is still as popular as ever like i haven't spent a dime with them kind of since then but for other reasons as well which we've covered in the past um there are game companies that are willing to take your content away and aren't going to give you anything back for it.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Do you guys um, remember uh, there was a DC Comics MOBA called Infinite Crisis? Do Do you remember remember this? Yeah. Yeah. So Infinite Crisis never made it out of early access. They killed it before because they were like, Look like not enough people are playing it. It wasn't very good. Money off of it. It wasn't very good. (laughs) Um, you know stuff like that. But like they had a storefront up for it. People could buy into it, and then they just took it offline. Like I, this happened with me as well. Um, Marvel Heroes. It was a Marvel Diablo MMO. It was very very interesting. A lot of fun. I enjoyed it. But um, it lasted for about three or five years, or five years or so, and they shut it down. But like when they shut it down, like they didn't refund you any of your cash or anything like that. They didn't like they just kind of like took your money and ran. And like I remember that that was just like really like a bummer to me because like before the game had come out when it was like in early access beta and it was like play the beta for free. And then you played the beta and then they were like, Oh, if it's, you know, give us a hundred bucks and you'll get all, you'll get 52 characters and all of these different costumes. And I, I did it. Like I, I gave them a hundred bucks and now like I have nothing to show for it. And like, I'm not saying that every dollar I spend, you know, needs to have like equitable return, you know, like I spend money on a candy bar. I eat it. It's, I got my enjoyment out of it, you know, And I think treating games as a consumable is just really, really slippery slope and a dangerous place to be as part of the industry, you know?
2: And I think that argument can be made, actually, for most MMOs right now because the market, the gaming market is being saturated with MMOs. And it's like, how many times are you going to pour money into a video game that, it's the mmo doesn't do well like look at everyone in anthem right now yeah um uh, it's oof. like how many people are paying they bought the game they're paying for like the monthly fees or whatever they need to do but it's like what happens when if bioware just decides to kill it like a year after launch well
0: recent rumors you know, are a, pointing a, to like a complete reboot
2: <laughs> yeah a reboot but that's that's because. You know, Bioware has the backing to continue that, but with so many other games, they don't necessarily have that capacity. So it's like, you're going to pay a game and they could kill it because in their mind it's not doing so well. Yeah, because... And then you have nothing to show for it.
0: Not everybody's got, like, EA's bank, you know, yeah. like, in their phone to be like, hey, give us a couple more million so we can reboot this game. Like, some games just are DOA and that's that's it, you know?
2: Yeah, it's, and that's kind of why I actually stay away from MMOs, because it's it's such a, in my mind, it's such a short time frame to enjoy a video game. Yeah. So it's like, if I, if I don't buy, like I got, I jumped into the Sea of Thieves hype pretty quickly, because oh, I was like, oh, I have to play lot. it now. It is, but also at the same time, I bought it, I played it with my friends, and now no one plays it uh, in my friend group. So it's like I feel like I paid for this game, I only got a couple months out of it before before it was done and now I can never go and revisit it. I mean,
1: yeah, the number of times my friend group has everybody spent 10, 15, 20 on a random Steam game that we can play together and mm-hmm. we play and we all install it and play it for 3 hours and then never touch it again, like it's just it's astounding how many times I've done that.
0: But I mean,
2: <sighs> which in itself, like that's, that's a whole nother genre, which we could argue about, but at least with, you know, like single player games, because I'm a big single player fan. I always feel like a, you know, I, if it comes with both single player and multiplayer, if the multiplayer dies, at least I can go back and enjoy and revisit the single player experience. I think you've
1: really convinced me on when you look, when you go to buy a game If it is a a game that has a strong single player, solo player experience, like I want to buy a physical copy now. I just, like, Mm -hmm. I I think that uh, that if I have this physical copy of the game, then I know in the future, if I ever want to return to it, if I have the hardware, I'm going to be able to.
2: Yeah. So, whereas with a a digital, like a transient game, that may only last for so many years with the servers and the online experience. It's like, you might as well just go, you know, stick with the digital, be happy with digital because it's probably going to be dead in like a couple of years. We don't, not every game is a World of Warcraft experience.
0: Yeah. Well, and one thing, you know, especially when it comes to MMOs that I think we need to keep in mind is despite all evidence to the contrary, World of Warcraft is the exception, not the rule.
2: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and that's and everyone wants to be the next. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's
0: and that. So I don't know, and like I, I, I want to loop back to that point you guys were making about like single player games and things like that, and like it's really interesting because I bought Mass Effect Andromeda when it came out, like the day it came out, right? Oh, and well, so <laughs> you say that now, but here's the thing: <laughs> when I sat down with it. My wife was sitting next to me, and she was like, oh, cool, Mass Effect, let's get into it, let's get into it. And I said, well, I just want to play the multiplayer. She goes, why would you want to do that? And I go, because I know the multiplayer is going to be dead in four months. So if I don't play the multiplayer now, I'm never going to get the multiplayer Mass Effect experience. Yeah. And, like... Which... I don't know, like, that was a conscious choice that I made...
2: And that's a depressing mentality to have.
0: It is. It is. Because I love Mass Effect. Mass Effect's great. But, like, the fact that a multi-million dollar IP cannot sustain an active multiplayer community beyond six months unless you're Call of Duty, like, just blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Because that's it. It's, it's Call of Duty. It's Call of Duty and Battlefront. Or uh, a yeah. Battlefield. If you're not one of those and you're a first-person shooter, good luck. May the force be with you. Like,
2: yeah. <laughs> but but are the the odds are not in your favor. <laughs> yeah.
1: But are those games not like multiplayer games first? Like, do I guess do people that play those games? Well, they never started out they, that no, way. No, they, they didn't. Yeah. I but may probably since Call of Duty, Modern Warfare three, if not Black Ops two, were they not multiplayer f- forward first?
2: Yes. See, but but even then, it's they're turning the games themselves don't have a long shelf life anymore because they're churning the games out so fast. So it's like okay, Black Ops two, then it was like Modern Warfare three, and and so on and so forth. Like they keep coming out with a new game like every couple of months. So the series itself has a long multiplayer life, but each individual game doesn't necessarily. Because they're pushing out a new game. With a new multiplayer experience every time.
0: Yeah. Well and I think. That's a very interesting point as well. Because. um, You know Dylan and I being big. PC gamers and things like that. uh, When. BlizzCon was this year. They came out and announced Overwatch 2. And they said. Well Overwatch 2. Like you're going to be able to keep all of your skins. And stuff like that. And you're going to be able to play with people. That have just standard regular overwatch and that's their idea for a sequel is that overwatch 2 and overwatch 1 players are all going to play together and like i think that's really really cool but i don't think anybody other than blizzard could pull that off
1: i just think it's why are they calling it a sequel i'm still so
0: like to please investors
2: yeah that's that's interesting i didn't know that they were doing that
0: yeah, so, well, and that was the thing that they talked about a lot was, you know, you're going to keep all of your skins. Like, you worked hard to, like, get all yeah. of these skins, so you're going to keep them going into Overwatch 2, which is really great and really fun. But, like, what the, they, they say we want to redefine what a sequel means. And, like...
2: I mean, D- Dragon Age did... Actually, another thing about Dragon Age did something very similar. Yeah. um. After Origins, they've released Awakening, and in Awakening, like it came, it was pre-packaged as its own game on its own. Yeah. And you could tr- you could transfer over your entire character and everything that you had in the first game. Yeah. Well, so it's that- not an entirely new concept, it's just a rare one.
0: Yeah, and that was like a big premise and sticking point for the original Mass Effect trilogy too, is that your save mm-hmm. file transferred over between 2 th- 2 and 3. So it felt like you were doing like one continuous like story arc, you know? Yeah. And like, yeah. nobody does that, and it's so cool. Like, uh, it's such a cool feature, you know? Uh,
2: but nobody does, it's, it. and it's a. I just, I wish they would because it's just that that's how you keep a game going in in new iterations. You know how, how
1: people yeah. talk about how the Lord of the Rings trilogy is all one movie. Yeah. What do you What do you think about yeah. so? Red and blue and yellow, and Pokemon Stadium and Gold and Silver and Pokemon Stadium 2 are all one game.
0: Yeah, I agree with that.
2: 100%. I, I, I agree with it too, even though the gap and the, the inability to... Because what you're transferring over is just your mindset when you jump from game yeah. to game, because you can't really... Struggle. You can't really transfer anything physical over, but... Well, yeah, I would say it's all the same.
0: I mean, that was one thing that I really enjoyed about like Gold and Silver was being able to go back to Kanto and just completely stomp Faze. It's the second best right?
1: Pokemon game ever, <laughs> right after Heart Gold and Soul Silver.
0: Yeah. So
2: we're just talking about Pokemon. I just want to kind of turn the conversation back to physical and digital. Okay, um, is the fact that. You can go back and you can play those Pokemon games. You can easily find a physical like Game Boy Advance, Nintendo, whatever you need, and then you can find those cartridges and you can still play the games
0: if you're lucky. And the battery still works in the cartridge because all of those use like battery but saves. But so like you that can yeah, to pop it up and
1: replace the battery and it.
2: Yeah, they're yeah. actually pretty easy to replace. I've figured it out. Uh, it was it was a pretty simple concept once you figured out how they were made. But you yeah. do so lose it's just...
1: your save changing the battery no matter what.
2: Yeah, so if you haven't, that would should be the first thing you do if you do buy a used cartridge is make sure.
0: Yeah, so like, <laughs> and, and that just like, I think honestly, Pokemon encapsulates this entire thing for us, right? Yeah. Like, there's, there's hardware limitations, there's software limitations, like, I think it really, you know, puts a nice little a little cherry on top, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I love Pokemon so much.
1: And speaking of Pokemon, like, okay, I, I think Pokemon's a great example of what do you own? Do you own your save file? And in which case, do you own the, your Pokemon Red Blastoise that you transferred to Pokemon Sword and Shield? Oh, wait. <laughs> Sorry. Your Pokemon Red Charizard that you transferred to Pokemon Sword and Shield. You, you can get Blastoise in Sword and Shield. You can't get Blastoise. Yeah, you can. Yeah,
0: you can. <laughs> Squirtle's in the game. It's a rare, but Squirtle is in. What? I promise you. Yeah, Squirtle's in. It's a rare drop, but Squirtle is in Sword and Shield, so it's a oh.
2: What? Do, Has that been confirmed? Are, Do you guys?
1: <laughs> I've been... Yes, my I'm... brother's been playing, and like that's something he would have looked up. I mean, he got his Charmander today, but...
0: I, Dylan, you really need to read the text messages I sent
1: you. No, well, you sent me the <laughs> thing where you have to do stuff that you have to, like, break things. What? Never, okay, never mind.
2: Um,
1: never mind. That is neither just here neither, nor there. Yeah, it's neither here nor there. But anyway, transferring a Pokemon from the original game that you bought all the way, do you own, like, the code behind that Pokemon? Do you own the save file from the original game? Do you own the code... In the game because you bought it.
0: Like, is it a transferable license when you purchase it? Like, that's what it ultimately comes down to. Yeah, like... To. Like, legally. Legally. Is it a transferable license? Yes. I, I'm i inclined to agree as well. But, like, the other one, and I'm, I'm going to let this, you know, kind of percolate and blow your mind real quick. So, you don't own your World of Warcraft characters?
1: That's true. Like,
0: at all? I, I sat down many many years ago and read all 18 pages of the terms and services like read those things they will tell you what you have access to and what you quote-unquote have rights to as a consumer and um it's pretty bad uh the general rule of thumb is just don't read the terms and conditions and live in ignorance um (laughs) because i mean and it's the same with with iTunes, it's the same with anything you buy off of the Microsoft Store, the Xbox Store, it's the same if you buy it off of Steam. Like it it's all the same. Like you can you can, you know, download at as many times as you want, but essentially what you are giving them permission to do is rent hard drive space equal to the amount of the game files on your hard drive. Like that's essentially what it boils down to is like. And
2: at any time they can revoke that access.
0: Exactly. 100%. They can revoke it for any reason they want. They can revoke it because you cheated. They could revoke it because they're taking the game down. They could revoke it because there's questionable activity coming from your IP address. They can revoke it because your name is Ryan.
2: Like they can do whatever
0: they want. So,
2: and that's why I think digital is well, more people are starting to to question going fully digital. A lot of a lot of gamers I know are considering going back to physical because of those reasons or people who watch movies or read books, a lot of them still were digital for a while. They enjoyed it because of how easy it was to access those things. But then these sort of issues started to pop up where they realized they didn't actually own the content that they had bought digitally. So now they're reverting back to physical because of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so, and that's a thing with me is I'm a huge, huge fan of digital not necessarily because i agree with like oh if microsoft flips the switch i lose all of my stuff but like my big thing with digital is well at least until march um i lived in a really 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 tiny apartment mm-hmm. and like i just didn't have the space you know like it's like oh i want to buy more games but like my bookshelf is full and i can't like show all of the dvd spines and like at at what point like does it become a problem you know because there's definitely like a physical aspect to it not so much with games um but like it's a big problem with me with like books it's a big problem with movies like when my wife and i moved we did like a big purge of like all the movies we wanted to get rid of and it was like two or three boxes worth of movies
2: yeah but I also think that has to do also with being a consumer yeah. and how we're taught to constantly consume things. Because a lot of those movies at the end of the day are like, I bought this, I watched it once, and I'm only keeping it because like, you're not actually buying something with the intention of keeping it around.
0: Yeah. And- if that
2: makes any sense. it's like With games, we're all very like, let's snap, buy decisions all the time. But we need to be considering, be like, if I spend this much money on a game, will I actually be playing it in six months?
0: Yeah. Well, and I think that also comes down to how we as consumers and how we as society perceive value.
1: Yeah, I was just about to say uh, the the value of when you go to the movies to watch a movie, you're paying $6 an hour to watch for entertainment. If you buy a DVD and you watch it once, then you're spending probably $10 an hour. If you buy a video game and play it for 40 hours, then it's $2 an hour. But if you buy Skyrim and you play it for 600 hours, then you're getting...
0: Like, cents on the side. Yeah. You're paying cents. Yeah, And, and
1: I think that's one of the things that, like, gaming has done a really poor job of evaluating the value of a game in that, like, okay, all the titles are $50 or $60. All the titles are, are this. Even though like some games have significantly more content than others, some games, like some people will uh, beat the Elite Four and put Pokemon down, and some people will go to get their team to level 100 or they want to get perfect EVs or they want to complete their decks, and so they'll triple or quadruple the time played on that game even though both players have, air quotes, beaten it.
0: Yeah, well, and both players paid in at the same amount, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's
0: that's the other side of that, is, like, Fallout 4, I think I've put close to 350, 360 hours into. Nice. Yeah, I love that game. It's freaking great. It's my favorite. But, like, mm-hmm. that, I, I paid $60 for Fallout 4. I also paid $60 for Fallout 76. And have put thirty hours into seventy six. So, like, you know, what what's the value of a dollar? And like ultimately, and this is the thing that I think is just kind of like the nature of media, not necessarily gaming, but like media as a mm-hmm. whole, is like ultimately these are blind purchases. Taste is subjective. We don't know, like, I'm paying sixty dollars in the chance that I like something, you know?
2: Yeah. That's why I think digital can be good for like finding out if you enjoy something. It, it can be good for the blind purchases, in a way like if you're renting it. But it's like if you want to actually buy something and be able to have repeat access to it, then physical is the best way to go, because you know your access isn't limited or controlled by an outside party all the time.
0: Yeah, that's that's. There are a good easier
2: point. workarounds.
0: So um, I want to kind of wrap things up, but I do have uh, one more question for you guys. Um, And that has to do with the almighty, the all fabled, the grand, the glorious collector's editions. So Stephanie, I know you said you're like huge (laughs) on the Assassin's Creed. Like I I, want to see like a picture of yourself of just like all of those assassins ready to pounce. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I've got like, that picture. Leaks. Yeah. Like, so like, that's kind of like my limitus for a physical purchase is like if the collector's edition is cool, I will get a physical copy. But like mm-hmm. because of that, I'm also spending like sometimes double the amount of you know that sixty dollar price because I'm also getting like the Pip Boy for. You know, Fallout or a really cool statue or, you know, things like that. Maybe a cool
2: helmet, that sort of situation. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, where where do you guys stand on like collector's editions? Do those hold worth in your eyes? Even though, I mean, obviously they hold worth if you're going to purchase them, but like, I think collector's editions are really interesting in this whole physical versus digital space because it provides a very tangible thing. Beyond just the game,
2: you know? Just with my personal experience buying collector's editions, um, I don't think every game should have collector's editions. And I think a lot of collector's editions can be utter crap. Um, Assassin's Creed has done a good job of setting a good standard Uh with their collector's editions. You know, like, you get the beautiful statues, which are always, like, a wonderful quality. And they, and they throw in a lot of um, physical stuff as well. Like, they throw in, like, game maps, like, little weird, like, little trinkets. Like, one year they did, like, a, a music box that did the theme. Oh, that's cool. Of Assassin's Creed. Yeah, so it's, like, they throw in physical stuff to make it worth the collector's edition purchase. But some collector's editions um, will be, like, oh, you get a digital skin Yeah. with your with the special edition, you know, they throw in a lot of digital stuff that don't quite make it worth it. Yeah. Or they throw in like a cheap toy that not necessarily is great. Um, Like I think who someone recently, I can't remember for what game specifically, but for the collector's editions, they had done a canvas bag. They had showed like a picture oh. of a great looking canvas bag. It, you guys remember this one?
0: Yeah, it was it was 76.
2: It was Follow 26, <laughs> So in that case, and then what what everyone got was like a piece of crap. Yeah, was like a, and then they crappy trombone. little
0: trombone. Yeah, sad trombone.
2: Yeah. Just on on top of everything else. So it's like sometimes the collector's editions can be great if if whoever is making it is smart and clever and they're giving consumers something worth it. But if they're just gonna throw out digital codes with it and like cheap-looking stuff, then no. Yeah, It's not helping it. If anything, they're killing the collector's edition by doing that. So it has to be quality. It has to be worth it because you're trying to get people to spend more money than just the base game itself.
0: Yeah. I'm a sucker for art books.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. Art books are gorgeous. And that's something else, too, because they're like, here's some art you might not otherwise see put together in a beautiful book for you.
1: So uh, speaking of collector's editions, but also for... um, Because I think a collector edition, if it has digital things, it's it's probably the most complete one and probably should be archived, right? Um, What about on HD remasters, whether you're talking about Halo or you're talking about... um, Is it Kingdom Hearts Remixed? No, this is like its own game. Um, If you're talking about... uh, Warcraft 3 Reforged, which is coming out soon, do you need to archive the new HD release version of a game, or just the original?
0: I'd say both. 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 Yeah, I would say both. One thing that's really interesting that you brought up about with Warcraft 3 Reforged is Warcraft 3 Reforged is getting a physical collector's edition in China only. Hmm. Um... (laughs) Just because that game never saw release, like, physical release in China back when it was released back in, like, 2002.
1: But And what's cool is that, so when that game was mm-hmm. released in 2002, there were four different boxes. There was an undead, a night elf, yes. an orc, and a human box. However, yeah. and, and the undead one had the lich uh, face on it. However, the yeah, China, China release, since it's a skeleton, instead it's going to be Arthas' face from Frozen Throne. So, the humans yeah, will, the be, uh, will be will Paladin Arthas, and then the undead will have Death Knight Arthas. And I just think that's really interesting.
0: Yeah.
2: That, and, and publishers love to do different variations of a collector's edition based on location. Yes. So, like, North America will get this collector's edition, uh, and then Europe will get another one but Germany might get a better one and they're all over the place. And it's actually frustrating as a collector because they're constantly releasing different versions of a product, Yeah, but they're limiting them for location for whatever reason.
0: Yeah. No, it's very, very weird. Um, and then, but just
2: in, in regards to the game itself, we were talking about remaster. I just want to use like, cause media and books have been around for so long and they've already kind of gone through the transition of digital. Yeah. Um, and all those bumps, whereas video gaming is still kind of figuring out. Star Wars is the perfect example. Because how often, how many times have they changed Star Wars? Too many. And released it? Too many. Too many. But right now, it's like we've definitely, I know us consumers have, I don't know what Lucas is doing, but we've definitely preserved those different versions Yes. of Star Wars.
0: Yes, we absolutely have. 100%. Yeah, something I'm very proud because of. Because
2: a lot of us are like version 1 is what it was version 1 is true Star Wars and other people might agree or disagree I think video games should be the same it's like you know like there's going to be it's going to evolve, it's going to change and we're going to have to preserve all the different versions however horrible or great they are.
0: Definitely um, so one thing I do want to bring up uh with the idea of like remasters versus originals. Uh one thing that Blizzard does or at least did with StarCraft remastered, they recently re-released StarCraft One as a quote unquote remaster uh with modern battle net and things like that, modern matchmaking and multiplayer, and brand new hand-drawn art. Uh but you can press a button And it'll turn the skin off. And it'll go back to the original art from 1998. It'll go from widescreen to full screen again. Things like that. Oh,
2: that's cool. And,
0: yeah. So, they they say it's like, this is the complete experience. They didn't touch any of the code. It's literally just a nice new coat of paint. And you can literally hit a button and it will transition between the old graphics and the new graphics. Um, The Master Chief Collection does that as well. On, um... Halo for Xbox you can hit I believe it's the back button and it'll transition between Halo 1 graphics on the original Xbox and the HD textures for the re-release so I think That's kind of, like, my ultimate, like, this is how everything should be preserved, but, like, not every company is Blizzard or Microsoft and has the time or ability to do so. Do we need to? Or the desire to do so. Yeah, that's true. It's, like, these are also, like, games that are, like, super well-established and super adored by the community. These are not, you know. Yeah. I I don't know. Do we, but do. Madden 2001. (laughs) Like. I think that can skip the preservation file. Well, oh, and that's an interesting <laughs> one. Is like, do
1: we need a copy of every Madden know. ever released? Right. I mean,
2: all games have contributed to that's true. That is the video game true. industry in itself, good or bad.
0: That is, they're all part of the learning yes, curve. That's, that is a good, good point. And let's not forget that like a lot of those systems that were built in Madden transitioned over into. Um, like the Battlefront series for like player customization and things like that. Cause all that stuff gets shared between mm-hmm. EA, which I think is really cool. So um, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. Um, Stephanie, where can people find you on the internet? And uh, do you have any cool upcoming projects popping up in the future?
2: Um, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Steph G-R-K. Uh, that's S-T-E-P-H-G-R-K. Um, it's shortened for Stephanie Girk, uh, And I'm on Twitter and Instagram, constantly talking about Star Trek and video games there. Um, and as for projects, none that I can announce at this time.
0: Oh, little tease. Announced in yeah. the future.
2: But will be announced in the future. And if you follow me on uh, social media, though, you'll get teases every once in a while about them.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, Dylan, what about you? Where can the people find... Your fine hot takes.
1: You can find me on Twitter at Scampy Twist. It is my current 2020 goal to be uh, Twitter active. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at Scampy underscore Productions. So
0: nice, nice. Yeah, you do a lot of cool video stuff. Definitely check that out. Um, you can find me online at Ryan M Holt pretty much everywhere twitter instagram the whole nine um you know with dylan stating his 2020 resolution like that's part of mine as well as i'm gonna hit the social real hard so expect to see a lot of stuff there i talk a lot about star wars if you're into that
1: i i got a quick question so that's for you guys go ahead uh so oh, nice and quick we, we talked about hd and remasters and things what is what is this is this a or podcast, is this not enough resources 2.0? Is this not enough resources remixed? What are we
0: calling it? I like remixed, remastered. I like remake. I don't know.
2: Remix is fun though. Remix is like we took everything you love and we just kind of twisted around to make it something better and more fun.
1: I dig it. I dig it too. I dig Same. it. Well,
0: thank you for being our first special guest on this remix edition of Not Enough Resources. Um, Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's not a problem. It was an absolute pleasure. I do want to say, though, when you guys are sitting down at home playing games, having a good night, if you're playing online, if you're playing single player, no matter what, don't get tilted. Don't get angry. They're just games, man. Everybody's playing to have fun. And remember to be kind to your fellow gamers.